Lord Jesus, we thank you for another opportunity to be together as your people this morning and to study your word, to sing to you, to praise to you, to give worship to you, and to hear your word preached this morning. Lord, pray that uh, um, this, this time would be uh, a good time for us, that we could take a break from all of the, the busyness of our lives and, and the mundane tasks that we have to do, and that we could come here and then we can hear your precious word. And so, Lord, we pray that, that we would hear that this morning and that we would love it and that it would change us. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews again this morning, of course. Uh, and we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 5, beginning with verse 11. And we'll be crossing over about halfway through uh, in chapter 6. So we'll go from Hebrews 5.11 to chapter 6, verse 12. Now, I'm going to read the text in just a second, but I want to sort of um, warn you as we begin this this morning that uh, this passage that we're going to be dealing with today is not by any means an easy passage. Um, It's probably the most difficult passage in the book of Hebrews, and it's also been categorized as one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament itself. Uh, So we're in for it this morning, and in about a half an hour, I'm trying to cover an extremely difficult passage. So hopefully my goal here is not to be exhaustive, but to sort of give us the general picture so that we can have a good grasp of what's going on here, even though it's still a difficult passage, all right? So let me read it for you, and then you'll see what I'm talking about in terms of its difficulty, and uh, we'll go from there. So Hebrews chapter 5, beginning with verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, And produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. And the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators 
of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So I don't know how much uh, that, that you grasped as I was reading through that passage and as you were following along, but I think you, know, you can see just at the outset, this is a very difficult passage. There's some, some tricky things here. And particularly, the, the tricky part of this passage comes in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 6. And that's where it says, For it is impossible, in the case of those who have been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and all these things, it is impossible for those people, after falling away, to be restored again to repentance. That's the tricky part. What is the author of Hebrews talking about there? What kind of person is he talking about? And uh, that's the question we're going to try to wrestle with a little bit this morning. And there have actually been a number of different options that people have tried to give to understand what's going on here. To understand who this person is who has done all of these things and then fallen away and then cannot be saved again. Uh, This is a very interesting sort of situation that the author of Hebrews is putting out there for us. And there have been a number of options. And I just want to give those to you all quickly just so you can sort of see the lay of the land for a second. One option here is that the person that the author of Hebrews is talking about is a genuine believer. And so according to that view, if you take it that way, then our author is saying that if you're a genuine believer who has been enlightened and shared in the Holy Spirit and heard the word of God and all that, and then you fall away, then you cannot be saved again. That's one option, a genuine believer who lost their salvation and cannot get it back. A second option is a hypothetical option, where it's just like the author of Hebrews is giving a hypothetical. He's just saying, look, uh, if these things that I've said are true, then this would be true. So he's just giving a purely hypothetical example. He's not actually talking about any real person. It's not actually something that happens. People don't be enlightened by the, the Spirit, and they don't uh, share in the Spirit and hear the Word of God and then fall away. That's just purely hypothetical. Okay? That's a second option. Uh, a fourth option, or excuse me, a third option, is just that this person being described is an apostate. And that argument simply says that uh, this person looked like a Christian. This person essentially right, was part of the church. They heard the word of God. They participated in the work of the Holy Spirit in some way, but they weren't actually saved. And so when they fell away, what they were doing is they were announcing that they're not Christians. They're rejecting the faith, and they walk out of the church, and those kind of people are impossible to bring back, our author says. And that's the third view. And then the fourth one is actually the view of many of the Westminster divines. And those were the theologians and the pastors that put together the Westminster Confession and the Catechisms. And the view that those guys had at the Westminster Assembly, this was not actually put into the Catechism, but this is what they talked about at the Assembly and in their writings. is They said, this person that Hebrews chapter 6 is describing, who falls away and can't be restored to repentance, is someone who has committed the sin of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So for the Westminster Assembly, those people at at the place who were discussing this passage and were discussing who the author of Hebrews is talking about, they said this is a description of someone who commits the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Someone 
who commits the unforgivable sin. And therefore, that's why he can't be restored to repentance. That's why he can't be saved again. is because he's committed the unpardonable sin. All right, so there you've got some of the options. And there are more options than that that people might throw out there. But you can see, we've got everything under the sun. We've got some people who say this passage is talking about genuine Christians who lost their salvation. And on the other side of the spectrum, we have people saying that this passage is talking about someone who committed the unforgivable sin. So that's a pretty substantial uh, amount of differences between people. And so what, we, what we're going to do this morning as we look at this text is we're not going to spend a whole bunch of time debunking different views, okay? but rather we're just going to focus on trying to understand what the text is saying. And we're not going to be able to answer every question that might arise in this text. We, we just don't have time for that. But what we are going to try to do is get a general picture. What is our author talking about? What kind of person? And how does that fit into the message of the book of Hebrews? Right? We need to understand that too. Because this passage in chapter 6 about this person who falls away fits in to the author's overall argument in the book. So we can't divorce what's going on here from the argument. It has to make sense with what the author is saying in this book. Okay? All right. With that in mind, then, our passage here breaks into two sections. At least I've broken it into two sections. All right? The first section is the warning of danger. And that's going to go from chapter 5, verse 11, all the way through chapter 6, verse 8. And then the next section after that is a theology of assurance. So essentially what we have our author doing is he is giving a warning and then he is following that warning with why his readers should be assured of their salvation. All right, we're going to see how those two things fit together in just a second. Um, but going on here to the warning. All right, so this is in chapter 5 verse 11 and following. You remember how uh, as we've gone through the book of Hebrews I've said over and over again. There are seven major sections and six warnings, right? You remember that? Seven sections and six warnings. The seven sections are telling us about Christ. They're telling us how Christ is superior to X, Y, Z, etc. Right? Jesus is superior to the prophets, superior to the angels, superior to Moses. And last week we started the fourth section, which is that Jesus is a superior high priest. He's superior to all the Aaronic priests of the Old Testament. Because he's better in every way. And we saw that last week. He's better in every way. He's God. He's man. He can offer himself as a sacrifice, which the Old Testament priests definitely could not. So that's the context here. Jesus is the great high priest, the greatest high priest, the most sure mediator for God's people. And so in the middle of this fourth section, because our author's not done talking about Jesus as priest. He's going to continue with that in chapter 7. But in the middle of this argument here about Jesus being high priest, he suddenly breaks in to the third warning. All right, you remember, seven major sections, six warnings. Here's the third warning. That's what's going on. So this warning, however we understand it, has to fit in some way with the message that Jesus is our great high priest. Right, so keep that in mind as we go through here. We've got to remember the context. We cannot divorce this text from the context if we want to understand what it's saying. So, about all of this, verse 11, 
All of this about Jesus being high priest. About this we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So here's the warning he's saying. Look, guys, we can explain this all day long. We can tell you all about how Jesus is this great high priest. But look, I need to warn you for a second. You guys are becoming dull of hearing. For by this time, you should have become teachers. Yet now, you actually need someone to explain the basic principles of the oracles of God to you. See, there's the warning. They're not quite paying attention. They're not understanding the implications of what our author is telling them. Jesus is the great high priest. Yeah, and by the way, I need to keep telling you this, and I need to really break this down for you because you're not understanding what I'm saying. You're not getting this. You're dull of hearing. Wake up, people. That's what he's saying. And so now he's going to explain to them the implications. Why is it that this doctrine of Jesus being our great superior high priest, why is this so important? And so he chides them here at the beginning of chapter 6. He chides them. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and the eternal judgment. And you can see there, what, what our author's talking about there is he's talking about first century Christian new members classes at the church, basically. And he's, he's going over the fundamental doctrines that the church was teaching Christians. Sort of like your, your Christianity 101 class. And it's, it's the doctrine of repentance, faith in God, washings, or literally in the Greek, baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. Those are basic elements of Christian doctrine. And our author's saying, look, guys, you, you've got to grasp these basic things because we've got to move on to more mature things. Quit being dull of hearing. Pay attention to this great doctrine that I'm telling you because I'm about to show you why it matters to you. I'm about to show you why it matters to you. And here's why it matters. Verse 4. This is where we get to the difficult part. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to content. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. As you can see there in verse 4, As our author wants to explain, why is the priesthood of Christ important for you? He goes into this interesting discussion about this sort of person. And he describes this person who falls away as someone who has has been enlightened, who's tasted of the heavenly gift, who's shared in the Holy Spirit, etc. And as he describes these qualities, as I just read them off a minute ago, you notice what this person sort of sounds like. He sounds like a Christian, doesn't he? He sounds very similar to a Christian. He's listening to the word of God. He has tasted of the powers of the age to come. 
He is associated in some way with the Holy Spirit's work. He's been enlightened. Tasted of the heavenly gift. That sounds a lot like a Christian. Alright? Now, what does our author say about this person who sounds like a Christian? He says, if this person who meets all these qualities falls away, whatever that means, it is impossible to restore that person to repentance since he has crucified the Son of God once again. Now you can see right away, if the person that our author is referring to here is a Christian, is a legitimate believer in Christ, is a true believer, was truly saved, then our author seems to be describing here the truth that believers, true believers in Christ, can fall away and lose their salvation. If the person our author's talking about is a Christian, a legitimate Christian, then we can lose our salvation. That is the implication here of if you understand the person as a Christian. And so you can see... That becomes problematic in light of other places of Scripture, doesn't it? Because other places of Scripture very clearly teach that true believers cannot lose their salvation. That we are held firmly in the Father's hand. No one can snatch us out of it. All of Jesus' sheep hear his voice, follow him, and none of them will perish. Everyone whom the Father gives to Christ will be raised up on the last day. And so we have numerous passages elsewhere, and we could list a whole bunch of other ones that say that true, genuine Christians will not lose their salvation, not because of our own power to to muster up our own adherence to God, but rather because God, through the Holy Spirit, is at work preserving us in the true faith unto salvation. So we got that part. But here in Hebrews, we've got an interesting deal because it sounds like he's talking about a Christian who can fall away and cannot be restored unto salvation. That sounds problematic in light of other places of Scripture. So what are we going to do with this? Well, here's the thing. Do you remember earlier, last, uh, I don't know if it was last week, but probably the week before and a few weeks before that, who is the example That the author of Hebrews is constantly bringing forward to show, hey, readers, don't be like them. Who was that? Don't be like them. That's right, the Israelites. Exactly. He constantly brings up the Israelites. Why? Because the Israelites, they were called by God out of Egypt, out of bondage there. They went out into the desert. And they experienced all the great things of God. God entered into a covenant with them at Sinai. And then they responded in unbelief. They apostated. Now that was problematic. That was very problematic. And so what our author is constantly doing, what he's done in the first two warnings that he's brought up here in Hebrews, is he has come out and he said, guys, listen, don't be like the Israelites. Because they received all of the great things from God, and yet they responded in unbelief. They responded in unbelief. You know what? Our author here is again talking about the Israelites. Because if you think about it, go back and and think about the story of the Israelites. God brings them out of Egypt. He brings them out during the Exodus. 
And he enters into a covenant with them. They become the covenant community. They become, if you will, the Old Testament visible church. And so as the visible church, did they taste of heavenly gifts? See, they tasted of the manna from heaven. They tasted of the water coming from the rock. They shared in the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of God itself brought them through their baptism through the Red Sea. If you read the, the text there, uh, in, in the Hebrew at least, you can see that God sends his Holy Spirit to part the waters of the Red Sea so Israel can undergo their baptism. It's a recreation event as Israel is brought through participating in the Holy Spirit. And they come out on the other side. They enter into the covenant with God. They taste of the heavenly gift. They taste of the word of God and the power of the age to come as Moses thunders from the mountain. And then Israel, when they responded to the heavenly gifts of God, what did they do at the waters of Meribah? Well, God gives them manna from heaven. The very next chapter, they're like, no, sorry, God, we don't believe you. We need water now. And we're told in that text, as I mentioned two weeks ago, that Moses records for us, That Yahweh himself came down and stood on the rock. That rock which Paul says symbolized Christ. And as Yahweh himself stood on that rock of Christ, Moses struck him and living waters came out. Israel crucified the Son of God again. Symbolically, of course. But that's what our author is referring to here. As Israel apostated in the wilderness, they crucified the Son of God again. So we have that same thing going on here as our author describes this particular person. This particular kind of person who in every respect on the outside looks like a genuine believer. They look like a Christian. You you read this and you think, boy, that sounds like a Christian. Yeah, exactly. That's the point. This person sounds like a Christian. But in the end, they prove not to be. In the end, they prove not to be like Israel. Israel looked like genuine followers of Yahweh in every respect as they were brought out of the Exodus. But they proved not to be. They proved not to be by their unbelief. And God had to raise up the next generation and bring them into the land of Canaan. So that's what our author's talking about here. He is talking about someone who looks like a Christian in every conceivable way. They come to church. They hear the word of God. They partake of the sacraments. They are in some way participants of the benefits of the work of the Holy Spirit within the church. So they look like Christians in every conceivable way. And yet they're not. Now, that's the warning. Our author says, listen, readers, don't be dull of hearing. Don't be like the Israelites. Don't be an apostate because it's impossible for them to be saved. But notice what he says in verse 9. Now this is where we have his theology of assurance coming in. Verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. 
And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now in those verses we have our author turning his attention slightly. Because on the one hand he gives a solemn warning, and then on the other hand he turns and says, oh but by the way, we know better things for you. And it's in this section that we actually see four really solid reasons to to see why the author of Hebrews in the first part, in the warning part, is not talking about genuine believers there. The first reason is in the very first part of verse 9. He says, though we speak in this way. That you see, when he gives the warning, he's not speaking, strictly speaking, like theologically, in the sense that he's not saying, this is you. You are the apostates, O readers. You see that? He says he's speaking in a certain sense. Well, what sense is he speaking in then? Well, I'm not, I don't really have a good like, title for it, but the best one I could come up with is that the author of Hebrews is, in the first part, in the warning, is he's speaking pastorally. He's speaking pastorally. Because you see, there's a, there's a difference between speaking pastorally and speaking theologically. And I don't mean to divorce theology from practice there, but what I'm, I'm just making a distinction. Because you think about it for a second. Let's say a, a pastor gets up on Sunday morning and he preaches a sermon. And he preaches it on John 3.16. And he, at the end of the sermon, calls on people. He says, people, Jesus died for your sins. Believe in Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. The gospel call is for you. Come into the kingdom. Believe in Christ. Now, that's not an illegitimate thing to do at the end of a sermon. Right? That's very pastoral. That is calling people unto repentance, calling them unto faith. But when the pastor is doing that, even if he's a good Presbyterian, Reformed guy who understands the doctrine of predestination, when he preaches that, does he mean to imply that every single person who is in the congregation is able to believe on their own, even though he calls them to faith? No, because he knows, right, that's right, he knows that no one can come to faith without the effectual work of the Spirit. But that doesn't mean that every time we call people to faith, where we call people to believe, that we therefore have to spend a half an hour exegeting predestination. No, we can just preach pastorally. We can speak and teach pastorally. Believe in Christ. Even though, and I'll do that in my sermons. I'll say, believe in Christ, trust in Christ, even though I know that none of us have the ability to do that. But I know that the Spirit works through the preaching of His Word to draw people in. So it's the Spirit that is working. Right? So that's what the author of Hebrews is doing here. He's speaking pastorally. He says, though I speak in this way, this pastoral way, as I give you a real solemn warning, don't be like Israel. Don't be like this apostate person who looks like a Christian but actually isn't. Don't be like them. Though I speak in this way, he says, then the second reason is, he says in verse 11, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So, Our author has brought this forward. He has given this warning in order to bring about assurance for his readers. 
Assurance of their salvation. Now tell me something. Is it very assuring to your salvation if you read the warning and it is something that you can be? Let's just give you an example. Sorry, that was confusing. Let me give you an example. Let's say you are working at McDonald's. This is your first job. You're just out of high school. You're like working, working at McDonald's. You're going to, to pay your way through college that way, which actually isn't bad because they don't pay that, that poorly. But So you're at McDonald's. You come in the first day of the job, and your boss is like, all right, we are so glad to have you here. We want you to have full assurance that you will keep this job, that, that you will be able to be here the entire time that you're paying your way through college. Have assurance. Oh, by the way, if you mess up on anything, you're fired. Is that going to give you very much assurance? No. See, if you tell people that they can lose their stuff on the basis of their performance or their faithlessness or their mistakes, that's not going to produce any assurance. That will produce zero assurance. That will make you terrified if you understand the implications of what it means. And so our author, as he brings forward this warning about it's impossible to restore these apostates to faith, he's not trying to say that his readers actually fall under this category. But what he's doing is he's speaking pastorally and he's saying, don't be like this. Oh, by the way, even though I speak in this pastoral way, verse 9b, we feel sure of better things for you. Things that pertain to salvation. In other words, under the inspiration of the Spirit, we have our author saying to his readers, yeah, you guys don't worry about this. Don't fret. You're not apostates. You don't fall under this category. You're not like Israel. Don't be like Israel, but you're not like Israel. And so you see, what you have here is a classic way that Reformed preachers, Presbyterian preachers, preach. When we come across warnings in the Scripture, warnings about falling away, warnings about, about failing to reach the end, we say that those warnings are real in the sense that they really need to be heeded. Right? But what is it that we always do Whenever we preach the warnings, we immediately turn to the doctrine of assurance and perseverance. We say, these warnings are real. Don't fall away. Don't be apostate. Oh, by the way, the Holy Spirit will preserve you. He will work through this warning to preserve you. I feel confident of better things for you. Things which pertain to salvation. There you can see the twofold aspect of preaching the warnings in Scripture. The warning is real, but so is the doctrine of perseverance. Because just as we preach, people believe in Christ, yet we know that the Holy Spirit is the only one who can work that faith in people. So we preach, don't be apostate. And we know that it is the Holy Spirit who works through that as well. And all of that works together here to produce assurance for believers. All of these things are for the assurance. And this is how we get back to the original point. What is the context of this in the whole of the book of Hebrews? It is the superiority of Christ, and particularly here, of his high priesthood. This warning is part of the section on Christ's priesthood. What is it? 
that our author wants us to understand about Christ's priesthood. It is that it is in his priesthood that we have full assurance of our salvation. Christ's priestship is better than Aaron's. Those who fall under Israel's Aaronic priesthood, they died in the wilderness. Those who fall under Christ's priesthood do not fall in the wilderness because he withstood the wilderness temptation for us. Our salvation is 100% secured by the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ, because he is our high priest, offering himself for us, paying for all our sins, and continually interceding for us forever. So let this warning not be something that makes you think that you're not saved or that worries you or terrifies you. But the author of Hebrews wants us to understand that this warning should produce assurance because for God's elect, he is sure of better things for us, things which pertain to salvation. Praise God for Christ's high priesthood. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you again for your high priesthood. And we thank you for the teaching of your word that though the warnings in scripture are real warnings, yet we know that it is the work of the spirit, your spirit, to make those warnings effectual for us unto our salvation. Oh God, we thank you for that. And we pray that it would motivate us greatly this morning to come before you in worship, to sing to you, and to hear your word proclaimed this morning. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.